Good morning. We'll be reading this morning from Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 21. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens of he- the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him up from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. And with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst, and you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you and your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them your manna did not, you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. 
Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word and recount the history of your dealing with your people of old, Lord, may our hearts anticipate a word that is sharp and relevant, a story that is powerful, a story that explains our story and makes sense of our lives. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Long, long before the first student was ever tempted to have chat GPT write his book report for him, another temptation existed. It was called Cliff's Notes. Or, as it was called in my high school, Cliff Notes. Conjuring up the mental image of a cliff from which you were dangerously dangling as that book report deadline approached and you hadn't finished the book. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, Cliff's Notes were like little black and yellow booklets that contained the plot summaries, the important themes of all the books that you didn't bother to read yourself. For kids today, you still may not know, it's just imagine someone printed out all the internet's Wikipedia articles related to books, and that's Cliff Notes. Cliff's Notes, because they, they were literally Cliff's Notes. Uh, Cliff's Notes were actually started by a man named Clifton, Back in 1958, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> Clifton began with 16 Shakespeare summaries and started publishing them from his basement. So if you wanted to know the plot and themes of Shakespeare's Hamlet without actually reading Shakespeare, you would pick up Cliff's notes for Hamlet beginning in 1958. And by the middle of the 1960s, Cliff Notes were selling like fast food to people in a hurry. People were eating them up, eating up these summaries of classic tales with Cliff's Notes telling them what it all meant. Students ate up these summaries, especially when it saved them from the hard work of reading and trying to figure out the story's meaning for themselves. Cliff's Notes clearly scratched an itch that the public had. Probably the same itch in us that fast food McDonald's scratches with much of the same results. The content's all there, but not the same level of satisfaction. A happy meal doesn't come with the same level of satisfaction as sitting down to a long, leisurely three-course meal, does it? Getting the summary of the story is not the same as slowly digesting the whole book, but... Summaries certainly have their place, especially when a summary digests the whole and then points you to what really matters. A thoughtful summary can pull out the themes and meaning that the average reader might miss. Summaries have their place. When it comes to Nehemiah chapter 9, we are coming to one of my favorite chapters in the whole Old Testament. And one of the big reasons for that 
is that Nehemiah 9 functions like the cliff notes of the whole Old Testament. A far and far better than Cliff's summaries, Nehemiah 9 gives us a divinely inspired summary of the Old Testament. Because this summary is itself scripture. It's the summary God wanted to give and God wanted us to have. If you're wondering what are the most important events in the Old Testament, you ever wondered that? Well, they're here. They're here in this chapter. If you, you're wondering what are those events supposed to teach us, it's all here as well. This divinely inspired summary of the Old Testament gives us both what happened and why. Both the history and the interpretation of the history. Both the story's plot and its main themes. They're all here. If you've ever read the Old Testament narratives and wondered... What am I supposed to take away from this? Here is your answer, inspired by the Spirit of God and recorded in the Scripture. Here is how the Jews were supposed to understand their history. And here is how we're supposed to understand the history of God's dealing with us. Because our lives often feel like a microcosm of God's dealing with Israel, doesn't it? The themes we see here in this historical summary are the themes you have felt in here, in your own heart. These are the themes that make sense of their lives and make sense of your life. What are those themes and turning points in history? Let's see them together as we look at the first half of Nehemiah 9 this week and the second half next week. This is such an important chapter in the Old Testament that we're giving it two Sundays. We're going to see the Cliff Notes, the Old Testament, part one this Sunday. Unsurprisingly, this summary of the Old Testament begins at the very beginning. Here's the first of our six headings this morning. First, we're going to see the creation of all things, verse 6. The creation of all things. Look again with me, verse 6 of chapter 9. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Old Testament history begins with creation, with the creation of creation with God creating the heavens and the earth. Of all the events for Nehemiah to highlight, this first one is all-encompassing and pretty foundationally important, wouldn't you say? This is page 1.1 of our cliff notes to the Old Testament. In the beginning, God created all things. Nehemiah starts with a doctrine of creation. God created alone. God created all things. And God created all things for his glory. The hosts bow down to him. This one verse teaches a very succinct but very important doctrine of creation. Why is this important? Well, we all have some doctrine of creation. The atheist, the agnostic, the animist, all have doctrines of creation. 
They all have something they believe. Even saying, I'm agnostic, is to believe something. It's to believe that you can't really know what is fundamental to reality. We all have a doctrine of creation. It's just that some of ours aren't very good. Some of ours aren't very well formed or informed. Many people's doctrine of creation cannot answer these three big questions. The three big questions about reality. Question number one, why is there something instead of nothing? Can you answer that? Why is there something instead of nothing? How do we get order out of chaos? How does order come from chaos? How do we get minds out of mindless material? How do minds come from the mindless? If you're here this morning trying to figure out some things, I'd ask you, do you have a doctrine of creation yet that can answer those three big questions? Many of the world's most educated people have a doctrine of creation incapable of answering those three big questions. They might say, we don't know the answer now, but the light of science will provide all the answers eventually. When they say that, we do well to point out that this is faith that is talking. This is their faith talking. It's a faith in progress, a faith in science, a faith that contradicts some of their other core beliefs. Their doctrine of creation says that the universe is a product of random chance and time. That their minds and cognitive equipment are the byproducts of blind forces with no prevision, without any guiding hand. But if that's your doctrine of creation, you've got a problem. You can't believe that we are all just highly evolved apes and then go on to make confident assertions about things like inalienable human rights. But people do. Their doctrine of creation clashes with their innate sense of human value and dignity. And they just ignore the conflict. You ought not be able to believe that nature's only law is survival of the fittest and then go out and champion concepts like equality, compassion, and consent. But people do. They know that they want to believe in such a thing as human rights. They want to be believers in that sense. They want to believe that both the weak and the strong have equal rights and dignity, that we should show compassion to the weak instead of prey upon them, that human relationships ought to be based on consent instead of the strong taking what they want and the weak suffering what they must. Most everyone wants to believe these things, but all these beliefs are out of step with their doctrine of creation. All these beliefs come into conflict with, with what they believe nature teaches about itself. It's like many people's heads are soaring high up in the air with the values their hearts want to believe, while their doctrine of creation cuts the ground out from under their feet. For the Christian, however, our doctrine of creation puts rock-solid ground 
beneath our beliefs. We have a doctrine of creation that places firm ground under us for all the high values we innately know are true. Our doctrine of creation gives us grounds for human rights and intrinsic worth, for dignity and compassion, for hope and happiness, for equality and consent. A person's doctrine of creation really matters. And verse 6 is a great summary of ours. Verse 6 says that there is a Lord who alone is God. As a starting point, this already sets us apart from others. Just as this belief set Old Testament Israel apart from all the surrounding nations. In our modern creation myths, everything centers around blind forces and big banks. In the ancient creation myths, things weren't that much different. The gods were the forces who struggled with one another. The big bangs were their conflicts that brought the world into being. The universe was made through struggle and chaos. But the God of the Bible is completely unlike all the other creation myths, both ancient and modern. He is alone. He is separate. He stands outside of creation. The first man ever to leave Earth's orbit was an astronaut, a cosmonaut from the Soviet Union. This achievement was celebrated by the USSR's leader at the time in this way. He said, in Russia, our, our official religion is atheism. We are officially atheists. We have even more evidence for atheism now because we sent a man into heaven and there was no God there. C.S. Lewis was alive at the time and famously responded to that statement in this way. Lewis said, if there was a God, you wouldn't relate to him the way a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. You would relate to him the way Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare created Hamlet. The only way Hamlet can know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. This God stands outside of the play. He stands outside of creation like Shakespeare stands outside of the world of Hamlet. We wouldn't discover him unless he writes himself into the story. The rest of what follows in Nehemiah chapter 9 describes how God has done this very thing. He has written himself into the story. The author has come. He's written himself in the story as Shakespeare might write himself into a play. We see this in our next big heading, and the next big point in history is the calling of Abraham, verses 7 and 8. The calling of Abraham. Look, look with me, verse 7. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and the Heatite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Jezubite and the, and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants and you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. God chose Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees like an author 
might choose a background character and make him central to this plot's story. Abram, by himself, wasn't anyone special. He wasn't especially bright or exceptionally strong or ruggedly handsome. None of those things. He actually had some big faults. But God picked him out of everyone, out of all the other characters in the story, to be the special object of his call and his covenant. Abram receives this call from the Lord in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord says to him, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you. It's like Shakespeare's voice calling to Hamlet. Go forth from Denmark. Leave your father's kingdom and everything you know behind. This is what happened in real life to a man named Abram. Abram received a call direct from the author. And he receives this covenantal promise. The Lord says to Abram, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram, the childless, receives God's covenant. And this promise, you will be called Abraham because you will be the father of many nations. And through you, that is through your seed, through your descendant, all the families of the earth will be blessed. A promise to bless the world enters into the story. A promise that will find its fulfillment through Abraham's line. But the divine author also gives this character he chose many opportunities to doubt. Abram, Abraham and his wife were well past their childbearing years. Sarah laughs when she hears about the promise of a son. And when Isaac, the child of promise, does finally come, the author puts his chosen character to the test. Will Abraham offer up Isaac as a sacrifice if the author of the story asks him to? And on top of all these pressure points, the land of promise never actually becomes his. Abraham is a sojourner without a land of his own for all of his life. Yet, despite all these things, verse 8 says that Abraham's heart was faithful. He believed God. And by faith, Abraham was reckoned righteous. This is why he's a central character in the Old Testament story. The promise of blessing and salvation comes through him. That is through him in his seed in Jesus, the descendant of Abraham. Jesus is Abraham's seed who fulfills the promise and blesses forever all the families of the earth. The promises of salvation comes through Abraham. And the way to salvation is displayed in Abraham. Abraham isn't accounted righteous based on his flawless obedience or his strength of character. His obedience isn't flawless, and his character is often weak. Abraham is accounted righteous 
on the basis of his faith. It's sometimes a wavering and weak faith, but it is a genuine faith. In the same way today, Christians are accounted righteous not based on our flawless obedience, but by believing in the flawless obedience of another. We're made righteous through faith in the perfect obedience of Christ, Abraham's descendant and true heir. We also become heirs of Abraham as we inherit and imitate his faith in the promises of God. Faith in God's promises is required because the next chapter in the story begins pretty bleak. Here's our third heading in this Cliff Notes of the Old Testament. The captivity and exodus. The captivity and exodus we see in verses 9 through 12. Look at verse 9. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Abraham's descendants, who were heirs to God's covenant and promise, wind up being slaves in Egypt. It's a degrading and dehumanizing existence, as you can imagine. But as Abraham's descendants cry out to God, they are making an appeal to the author. And the author steps in. Verse 9 again, they, they cried out, verse 10, Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths, like a stone into raging water. And a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Imagine for a moment Hamlet appealing to Shakespeare. In the darkest moments of his tragic story. Could Shakespeare deliver him? Absolutely he could. Shakespeare could write that the ground opened up and swallowed all of Hamlet's enemies. Shakespeare could introduce a pillar of fire into the story. Guiding Hamlet where he should go. Avoiding all the dangers. Confounding all of his enemies. Shakespeare could rewrite Hamlet's tragedy into a comedy, if he wanted, complete with a happy ending. This is almost what happens with the Exodus. Almost. The children of Israel cry out while under the oppression of the Egyptians, and the author has compassion on them. Like an author has compassion on a character, the author has compassion. He has compassion on them in such a way that he breaks the normal rules he set for his world. He intervenes with signs and wonders, verse 10. He opens a way of escape through the sea and then destroys the enemies that try to follow, verse 11. He guides them, the freed slaves, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, there's a plot device for you. If you've ever written a story you know that you often spend a lot of time wondering, how am I going to get this certain character from point A to point B? I bet this would never have occurred to you. Just give your characters a pillar of fire to follow. 
which you, the author, direct around. And what's more, the characters know it's you, the story's author, who is guiding them. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kitchens here. Use this in your next novel, next fantasy novel, book number 22 or whatever it is. The author herself puts a pillar of fire for them to follow around, lighting them to all the, the major plot points. That would be great. Because this is a plot device, it still feels fresh. Like It still feels like a stroke of genius, original genius, even though it's as old as Exodus. I don't think I've seen it anywhere else. God himself, the author himself, shows up in the story to deliver his chosen people. And we all know that the author can break or bend any rule he wants in the world he has made. The author is free to do what he wants in his story. The Exodus is a story about an author acting in history. But Mount Sinai is about the story's author speaking into history. That's our fourth heading in our cliff notes of the Old Testament. The Sinai event. The Sinai event. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then... You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made, them, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down your commandments and statutes and laws through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter into, told them to enter into a in order to possess the land which you swore to give to them. Again, to remind you of C.S. Lewis's quote, if there was a God, you wouldn't relate to him the way a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. You would relate to him the way that Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Imagine that Hamlet, so imagine that Shakespeare guided Hamlet to the tallest hill in Denmark which is perhaps just a little bit taller than Joseph Blankenship's. Not, not a very tall hill. On this tiny hill, Shakespeare pulled back the curtain, as it were, and spoke directly to Hamlet. Hamlet, you're in a world of trouble, and you've been getting it all wrong, but let me tell you the real score. Let me tell you what to be and what not to be. And while you're here, Hamlet, let me feed you as well. Here's some manna. Here's bread from heaven. As the author, I can write bread into existence. My words can bring manna into being. We don't know how Hamlet would have responded in that situation. But we do know how Israel did. God came down to the mountain, verse 13, and spoke from heaven. And the people's response was, stop. We can't take it. Here's Moses. Speak to him, and we'll listen. Promise. In the history of Israel, the Sinai event is a special moment. Here the author himself speaks to the characters in his story, telling them what they should do and how they should live in relationship to him. Sinai is special. But imprinted upon the conscience of the nation is this indelible mark. While God was speaking in the wilderness at Sinai, the people were actively rebelling. 
That's the next turn in the story in our next heading. The wilderness rebellions. The wilderness rebellions, verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 says, while God is speaking, he's giving his word, verse 16, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a, a calf, a calf of molten metal, and said, this is your God who you brought up out of Egypt and committed great blasphemies. Picture this. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's law, with the finger of the author reaching into the story, writing on tablets of stone, even as this is happening up on the mountain, the people are down in the valley in open rebellion. They make a golden calf and say, this is the God who led us out of Egypt. In the face of the wonders on the mountain, they choose idolatry in the valley. Even Moses' brother, Aaron, joins in with the people in crafting this idol. And the rebellion doesn't end here. In the wilderness years, these are years that are full of rebellion and murmuring and complaining against God and hardness of heart and calls to return to Egypt, to go back to slavery. It's like Shakespeare revealed himself to Hamlet and Hamlet said, you know, I think I liked things better before I knew you existed, Shakespeare. I heard you tell me this is how I ought to, to live, how things ought to work, but I think I'll just keep trying to figure it out on my own. Thanks. I'll go my own way and do my own thing. And in essence, Hamlet puts his fist in Shakespeare's face. Such a response seems unbelievably broken and wrong, but doesn't it ring true to life? Doesn't it ring true to your life? God has spoken. We have his word recorded for us here in black and white. But don't we often say, no, I'll do it my way. No, I'll credit my success to something else I've done. to Something else I've made with my hands. No, I can't be bothered to listen to what God has to say about the story that we're in. I'll just follow my own heart, my own desires, not realizing it's, it's slavery. We can point the finger at Israel and say how foolish it is not to listen to the author. But don't we do the very same thing? We have even more of the author's words than they did, and yet we don't listen. We stubbornly go our own way, even though we have more light than the people of Israel had. Apparently, the author of this story wanted this event stamped upon the conscience of his people. Even as he was graciously speaking, his people were actively rebelling. That was true at Sinai, and it's true today. 
And one of the reasons the reality of sin is part of the story is so that God's character might shine through by contrast. Look again with me at the end of verse 17. They did all this, stubbornly appointed a leader to return to to slavery in Egypt, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love and kindness, and you did not forsake them. Why did the author include this rebellion in the story in the first place? One reason he did is so that his character might be made known. He wants it written into the story that he is a God of forgiveness. He wants it put on display that he is gracious and compassionate. He wants it shown that his anger is slow in coming. His steadfast love is abounding forever. He is a God who doesn't forsake us even when we deserve it. He remains faithful and continues his care even when his people are all the time messing up. That's what we see in our sixth and final heading in our cliff notes to the Old Testament. The prolonged provisions. The prolonged provisions. Verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, you, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. The people sinned and rebelled, but God continued to provide during their whole time in the wilderness, 40 years. The cloud did not leave them. The pillar of fire did not disappear. The manna did not stop falling. The rock did not stop spewing water for them to drink. God provided in miraculous and very practical ways. For 40 years, their clothes did not wear out. Their feet didn't swell. Not one case of gout among them. The author didn't forsake his flawed characters. Imagine if Shakespeare had done the same for Hamlet. Imagine if Shakespeare had written his own character into the story somehow. In the story of Hamlet, Shakespeare himself appears, full of compassion for Hamlet full of love, full of care, putting on display the character of his heart by patiently instructing the character of Hamlet. Such a surprising turn of events would certainly have given Cliff a lot more to write about in his notes in 1958 and perhaps made reading Hamlet a lot more interesting to the rest of us. But that's not the story Shakespeare wrote. It is, however, the story God wanted to write. He did write himself into the story. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The author steps into his story. The creator becomes part of his creation. The Word becomes flesh 
And the word made flesh perfectly put on display the character of God. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen the author. But we have seen the son who has entered into the story. And he said, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You've seen the author. We've seen him. We've seen his love in action. Jesus put on display the love of God that doesn't forsake though we fail him. He compassionately pursues sinners in rebellion and sheep that are straying. And like a good shepherd, he carries the lost back home. On a cross, our good shepherd is forsaken so that we, his sheep, might never be. Nehemiah's cliff notes to the Old Testament story is also a fair summary of our life story. Here we see the themes that ring true and make sense of our lives. We see God's good gifts and our rebellion. God's calling and our running away. God's speaking and our not listening. God's faithfulness and our failings. You may not be a fan of cliff note summaries, but every once in a while, you need to recall the cliff note version of God's grand story in order to be struck again that his story is the only one that really makes sense of our story. Father, as we have recounted the story of your dealing with your people, may we find fresh faith and hope that you will deal the same with us in our failings, in our wonderings, in our complaining, in our murmuring. You are a God of grace and compassionate. You will not abandon or forsake. And if we were to ever doubt that, we, we see it in the history of your people, but we see it even more in the good news of the cross and resurrection that the Lord Jesus has come, the author has stepped into his story in order to redeem his fallen characters. May we be those characters who have been changed by this story, this good news. Lord, I pray that every heart here would be a believing heart this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ and the difference he makes to our story. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.